Good morning, everybody. Hey, let's get into Matthew chapter 13. We're picking up in verse 44. This morning, uh, we'll be finishing out Matthew 13, in which we have been meditating upon the parables of the kingdom of God, the parables of the kingdom of God. And I think every time I kind of repeat what I'm saying, I just, that's on purpose. So, hey, what's a parable? Yeah, that's why I repeat it. So, um... (laughs) least I know it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. A parable is basically a story from everyday life and it has a, a spiritual or significant meaning behind it. And Jesus is using par- parables to relay things about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And in, in, in Matthew uses the word symbol, king, uh, the, the phrasing kingdom of heaven. And at this point in Jesus's ministry, he's, he's just speaking about speaking with parables to the masses of people. He's not explaining much. He's not doing all that stuff, although at times he would, but he's just speaking in, in these stories about the kingdom. And again, by way of review, the kingdom of God can be viewed very simply. And this is a very simplistic view as God's rule and reign and will and ways over his creation. That's the very general idea of the kingdom of God. And as you know, by now, Jesus in speaking about the kingdom of God, it can, it can be looked at in a, in a narrow sense. So there's the narrow sense of the kingdom, which is uh, involves those who are actually submitted to his rule and reign and will and ways. Amen? Amen. Both human and angelic. And so there's that true There's that true essence of the kingdom of God in which we're all a part of those who are believers who have submitted ourselves to Jesus, along with all the angels who are submitted to him. We're part of that kingdom and that kingdom is an eternal kingdom an everlasting kingdom. It's never going to stop. Right. But then also you can be looked at it in the broader sense. The broader sense is that within God's rule and reign, there is unruliness. There are those who rebel and reject and do not accept the kingdom of God, both man and angelic beings, which would be demonic Satan and his demons. Right. And so in the parables here in Matthew 13, um, Jesus is speaking generally about that broader sense of the kingdom. Actually in the first there's, I didn't tell you this in the beginning. I should have the parables are kind of divided into three different sections, three different groups of a couple parables. And in the first two groups basically are speaking about that broader sense of the kingdom of God. And uh, in those first two groups, Um, all the way up to where we've been so far, uh, Jesus describes the nature of the kingdom of God in the sense of those who have received it and rejected it, emphasizing the resistance to the kingdom of God. He wants his disciples to know as the kingdom is going forward, as the kingdom is going out, as it's taking root in the hearts of believers, of men, as it's being proclaimed by him and eventually them and to this day, as it goes forward, there's going to be massive rejection of his kingdom. There's going to be massive opposition to his kingdom as well. And he begins to describe that in these parables. And so we saw uh, that as Jesus manifested the kingdom, there was first of all, the resistance that took heart in the, in the hearts of men. And we saw that first in the parable of the soils that most rejected the Lord, most rejected his kingdom for one reason, reason or another. And few believed And then we saw also resistance in the form of a real spiritual adversary, the devil, that fallen, mighty, angelic being. 
And, and he's no joke as well, right? Very powerful, obviously. Um, although in the end, he'll be shown his, uh, his true colors there. And we'll marvel at him going, was that the one who did all this? You know, so there, that's some verses that are not for this morning. But anyways, he, uh, he goes along and he, um, we saw this in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He goes ahead and, and plants his own word in the hearts of men and it takes root and grows in people. So you see the weeds among the wheat, false believers among true believers, indistinguishable at times until the fruit is born within the true believers. And so there's opposition in that way. And then we saw that also the resistance to the kingdom took place in the picture of false growth, growth and false religion under the, all under the banner of the kingdom of God. And I think there was quite a, quite a reaction to that last week when we saw uh, you know, uh, just the picture of the, of the mustard uh, tree or mustard plant. It got way too big and there was a bunch of birds in it. And then we saw from the first parable, the birds are demonic. What are birds doing in the kingdom of God? Well, we know within the larger kingdom, the enemies at work, but also within what proclaims to be Christianity, there's false religion going on. And we, we talked about that at length last week. I would encourage you to go check that message out last week. And so we saw that in the parable of the mustard plant, but then also false teaching, false doctrine, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And so we saw in the parable of the leaven, the false teaching that permeates the kingdom of God. And this is why Jesus, when his disciples were saying, Hey, teach us how to pray. One of the things he was saying is, Hey, um, you know, Lord, your bill will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, make that narrow sense of the kingdom, the broad sense, let the, let the narrow truth of the kingdom be take, you know, manifest itself in this place that rejects you. And we're to pray for that. We're to be a part of that because we actually have been taken out of that rejecting world by God's grace have been brought into this marvelous kingdom and get God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so that should be the heart of the church, the same heart that God reached and grabbed us out. We want to go and turn to our world around us. And, uh, that's anyways, that's again, another message, but it all ties together. Of course. And so Jesus spoke of this aspect of the nature of the kingdom of heaven in the first couple, uh, group, two groups of parables. And that's kind of what we've been going over. And that's why we've gone slow because this stuff is important. It's foundational and I'm learning stuff. And, and by the way, um, you know, like you, like Scott mentioned that there was, you know, healthy discussion about the interpretation of that and different believers see different aspects of this. And I've taught it differently before to let you know. Um, but as I've grown in my walk with the Lord and my understanding, uh, this is where I land on my conviction. And so as we're going to see this morning, there's more of that going to be going on this week. So hopefully you don't get in trouble with one another. <laughs> You're going to wrestle over wonderful truth here. None of it's heresy as long as you don't go off script. But as, as we come to the final three parables, Jesus takes the first, takes the first two parables, the treasure in the field and the pearl of great great uh, value. So this is the last group, the first two parables that we're going to hit. There's three of them. The first two, they're kind of describing a different aspect of the kingdom. And we're going to see that in a second. And then in that third parable, he's going to wrap everything up again. You notice he does that. He'll explain something. And then he comes back and gives the big picture. He'll explain something, comes back and gives the big picture. That's on purpose. Why? 
because he'll teach something and then he'll repeat it and he'll teach something and he'll repeat it and he'll teach something and he'll repeat it. Why does he do that? Because pastor Matt forgets. And I know you guys don't, but I mean, that's why, that's why there's this repetition and he'll hit it from a different angle, the same thing all over. So there's a Jewish idiom repetition teaches the donkey and I'm a donkey. So you're along for the ride. Um, But so as we pick up this morning in verse 44 through 46, verses 44 through 46 in Matthew 13, we're going to read these first two parables together because they're, they're very similar. And so uh, just follow along as I read them with you. Yeah, read them with you. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found covered up. And then his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Lord, Give us ears to hear, give us hearts to respond, give us understanding that we may know you and rejoice in you this morning. Amen. Now, like many of these parables, we don't see an explanation, immediate explanation. So good people see this differently. Good people see this differently. Now, a common understanding of these two parables and perhaps the most popular and I'll kind of roll with this for most of our time here is that Jesus is speaking about how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is speaking about how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Up until this point, we've been, although there has been a subtlety about those, the kingdom of heaven going forward and people receiving it, most of the emphasis has been on the resistance to it. But now it seems in this last section, and by the way, he's probably got his disciples by himself now, because we see that in the end, he, he's explaining things to him. Um, he's wanting them to know how people enter the kingdom of heaven. That's one aspect of, of, of how people see these parables. So in that view, the kingdom of heaven here in these two parables, it is the object Uh, It's the objects described here. It's the treasure in the field. It's the pearl of great price. The, the focus um, of uh, these objects represent the kingdom of God. And again, it's treasure hidden in a field. It's a pearl kind of just among other pearls that people didn't recognize. Again, we see the kingdom is something that's hidden and revealed. We see that over and over in the parables, right? Jesus keeps talking about something that you can't see, but it manifests itself later. He's taking a different angle and describing the kingdom. And so again, we see that the kingdom is something that was hidden from plain sight, but revealed to those who were seeking it, it seems to the per- the man in the field. to so the merchant who went out searching. And in that imagery, the treasure and the pearl, the kingdom is something that was not obvious. It wasn't something that was obvious. In one case, you had a man who owned a field and didn't know the treasure was there. So some that kind of is like they were oblivious to the value of the kingdom, that there was treasure in the field. And then in the other situation, they're, they're at a market, it seems. And there's a bunch of pearls and, and the person who's obviously selling the pearls or has the pearls doesn't realize that there's a valuable pearl among all the pearls. So that's, that's kind of one idea there, but the imagery of the treasure and the pearls, the king of God is not something that is obvious. And the implication is that God had done a work 
in the, in the man in the field's heart, the merchant's heart to where they were able to see the value of the treasure, to see the value of the pearl. They were able to see the value of the kingdom, meaning they had eyes to see. They had ears to hear. Their hearts were not dull. They're responding to God and they saw the immense value of the treasure that was before them. Does that kind of make sense? And they recognized the supreme value of the kingdom represented by the treasure and the pearl there. And the idea here is that they understood the value where others did not. Not even the one who owned the field and and people get caught up. It's like, okay, well, he's not being truthful about the field. That isn't the point of all this. Jesus bypasses a lot of stuff. And his point isn't about, Hey, you should have went and told the owner of the field. It's not about ethics. It's, it's, he's focusing in on someone recognizing something of value. And what do they do with that? That's, that's the point, the kingdom, the value of the kingdom. And so there was a spiritual awakening that happened in these two people in order to see the kingdom in these examples. And so what did they do to go possess that of which they saw immeasurable value in these things? They know they recognized the kingdom of heaven was of a magnitude of order of worth greater than anything. So what did they do to possess that kingdom? Jesus repeats it twice, right? Verse 44 and verse 46, verse 44, look in your Bibles there. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 46, and he went and sold all that he had and bought it or the pearl. So in order to possess the kingdom, the man, the merchant must Sell all that he has to buy it. Sell all that he has to buy it. So too with the one who desires to enter the kingdom of heaven is the idea. Now, obviously we cannot buy the kingdom. And this is why people are saying that's probably not the interpretation of this. That's why those on the other side would say that's, that's not the focus of this, but quite often Jesus It's just using pictures here. And so now obviously you can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is saying, but what does Jesus say all over the place about getting into the kingdom of God? (coughs) Phrases like you must be born again. If this is about entering the kingdom, Jesus is saying that a person must value him the king of the kingdom above everything, even his own life, all his possessions, his family. This is how one enters the kingdom of God. They must lose their own life. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how one enters the kingdom of God. They must lose their own life in the sense that they become poor in spirit before God. Recognizing that he is of infinite worth. He is of infinite worth and everything must be given to possess him. And this is what Jesus demands. We get, we'll get to chapter 16 
soon. I know. In verse 24, don't worry, there's only a few more chapters after that. When we get to chapter 16, we're going to get to, if you can flip right there, actually, and see how close it is. Give you hope. We will read, we're going to read the words of Jesus in verses 24 to 28. He says in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Well, what does that mean? Is he just talking about following him? Chapter 16, I believe, verse 24 through 28. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. For what will a man profit? Well, uh, uh, what will a man, pro- uh, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Just the brilliance of his words. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So obviously you cannot buy salvation after the fact he's saying, he's saying, what's the most greatest worth having salvation, having your soul. So that's, that's the weight of it. And there's something that is placed in front of this person that, that saves him and gives him life. And it's in the kingdom and the kingdom is pointed to the King. It is Jesus Christ who is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price in this interpretation. And he is worth giving up everything to possess. Not that we buy him, but we lose our lives and he gives us his. Make sense. We never earn our salvation. That is all the other religions we talked about last week. But Jesus is the treasure and to follow him, to possess him, you must lose your life in the sense that you submit everything to him. It is a lordship salvation. It's not just believing that Jesus died and rose again. I'm going to live my life. It is belief is total submission, total abandonment. And that is a work of God alone in the hearts of men because all have gone, have gone astray. We've all gone on our own path. We want to be our own God and then plug God into our situation. That's religion. But God says, no, you abandon everything. You get on the deck of the aircraft carrier and you sign over everything to me. You've lost the battle. But in in giving up, you actually have gained the kingdom because you become adopted. You become a son, a daughter. And everything his is yours and yours is his. It's beautiful. And there are those in the world who don't see it. There are those in the world who don't recognize it will not recognize the value of the kingdom who look at it as like any other pearl kind of a thing and by God's grace and selling everything and losing your life. You actually find it. He's the treasure and notice in the case of the treasure in the field, the man in his joy went and sold all he had in his joy. Listen, it's not like, oh, I gotta lose my life. See, that's what happened to the rich young ruler. When Jesus said, the one thing that's keeping you from following me, I want you to give, give away all your riches. And he went away very sad because he was very wealthy. But see, it wasn't just about the riches in that case. It was another man who said, Hey, let me follow you. But first let me 
hang out with my dad. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. You're like, Jesus, you're mean. It's like, no, I'm serious about life. I have to be more important than your money. I have to be more important than your family. And by the way, loving God will make you an awesome steward of money and loving God will make you an awesome family member. The best you could be putting them first. You find life and all these other things. It wasn't a mourning loss. We think, oh, I'm going to give up everything. No, it's the joy. When God gets a hold of your heart, when you see how valuable he is, there's a joy in our hearts. That's the joy of the spirit. It's like, he's life. He's so good. Amen. It's a joyful rebirth. That's what new life does. There's joy in there. What, what he's giving up was nothing in comparison with what would be possessed. And so too, it is with those who find Christ. There is a great joy when you get it. Uh, when God shows you the treasure of who he is. Amen. So that's one way of looking at it. And to that, I would say, amen. Amen. Well, we've got a problem. Jesus didn't explain it. He just said, I hope you have ears to hear and eyes to see. It's okay. Well, so that's one way. Looking at it through the eyes of how to enter the kingdom and to believe upon Jesus, to give up everything for who he is, the son of God, eternal life, salvation from judgment. He is forgiveness of sins, the resurrection, the redemption, the restoration, adoption, or inheritance, true love, joy, or sure hope. He's the treasure. He's the pearl of great price. Amen? Amen. That's who he is. Now, another way of interpreting this is that the treasure is us. The pearl is us. The believer. That's one way of looking at it. The field is the world. And those of you who are studying revelation, see that there, that Jesus got buys back the world, so to speak. And he takes dominion of it, not for the sake of, of the world, but for the treasure that's in the world. Is that it's believers. And so the field is the world and we are the treasure hidden in the world. This would kind of line up with the other parables, kind of keeping in step with those. So others see it that way that we're the pearl of great price among other pearls. We're the treasure in the field. And in this scenario, the man, the merchant is Jesus. And upon seeing us in his kingdom, he sold everything to buy us. He gave his life to redeem us. Let that sink in. See why people struggle with this? Flip over to Isaiah 53 with me, please. Just for a minute, church. That's in the middle of your Bible. Kind of. Isaiah 53 written considerable time before Christ, what a thousand years or 700 years, 700 years, somewhere around there. Who has believed what has, what has heard from us and what he has heard from us. Who has believed our report that is. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant 
and like a root out of dry ground, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, didn't recognize him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and though there was no deceit in his mouth, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thousand years before Christ or 700 years before Christ prophet Isaiah laying out that he gave up everything to buy the treasure in the field that he gave up everything to buy the pearl of great price. Hebrews 12, one says, therefore, since one and two says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings to so closely and let us run endures the race that is set before us. In other words, let us run like Jesus. And here's the verse looking to Jesus, the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And with joy, he went and bought the pearl joy. And I have, and, and the joy to me is not only us, of course we're in there, but fulfilling the father's heart that he would redeem us out of the world, redeem us from the sin to make us one with him and enjoy that relationship with him. It was Jesus's joy. As he looked to the cross, he looked beyond it and saw the kingdom of his father, the will of his father, the rule of his father in you in it. And he said, yep. 
the joy set before him, the joy of being with you, the joy of being with our father. He gave up everything and he endured. If you read John 17, 22 through 24, we see God's glimpse into the, into that aspect of the heart of God. As Jesus prays to our father, he says in there, he says in verse 22, John 17, the glory that you have given me, father, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and loved me, even as you have loved me. And father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundations of the world. He wants you to see him in his glory. That's what's, that's what ladies, when you get to revelation and you look at the city that doesn't have a sun S U N there's a city with a S O N and he is the light that radiates. We're going to be there. We're going to see him in his glory, his love for you. I don't, it's the mystery. Why would he do that? It's the mysteries before the foundation of the earth. This is in the heart of God from all eternity to do this. You know, these two parables are the hardest for me to fall down on one side or the other on the interpretation. I, I've changed my view back and forth. Anyone else? And even talking to you, I'm like, well, let's split them. Let's make the first one about Jesus and the second one about us. It kind of seems to be that way or the other way around. I don't know. I'm still learning. I don't have perfect understanding, perfect knowledge, but I know that both these things are true in scripture. Amen. And while there is only one meaning to fall short of the true meaning, man, you're still blessed. <laughs> and to just enjoy either side of this discussion as you guys get together this week. No, it's, it's Jesus. No, it's us. But here's the irony is that both give up everything. That's the love of God. He is worthy of everything. And he loves us to where he gave his life for us. It's just that beautiful meeting obviously is we can't compare our giving up to his, but there's that call from him to have the same heart that's in Christ. Give it all for the will of the father, lay down your life that you might live for the joy set before you. So pretty cool stuff. Meditate on that this week. Then the final parable, Jesus moves back to the big picture again, real quickly, verse 47. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish on every, of every kind. You can imagine them being in Galilee. Everybody's getting this right. Fish of every kind. You're dealing with fishermen there. Verse 48. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good, good into containers, but threw away the bad. And again, we see the same imagery with the wheat with the tares and he wraps back around it with a fishing analogy, with a net gathering all kinds of fish. And Jesus gives us an interpretation in verse 49 says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous 
and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus, again, is speaking about the big picture kingdom. Listen, we can't have preaching that doesn't involve the idea of hell, the truth of hell, of judgment. You water down the gospel when you do that. You want, don't be afraid of the world. Fear God, church. Because there is a hell, but guess what? There's a great earthen hell. There's a savior whose blood cleanses us from all sin and makes us right with God. Amen. Amen. And so when we minimize what we're being saved from, we also minimize the sacrifice he made to save us. And so Jesus says here, man, the broad kingdom, it's going to be sorted. It's going to be sorted in the end at the harvest. At the end of the age, the evil will be separated from the righteous. So there's a hell. It's eternal. And those who are on that outer kingdom, you can read at the end of Revelation. And we fear this. We, it doesn't make us rejoice, but they will not be in that kingdom. And so we preach Christ. That's what we do. I hope. And so again, his name, Jesus means God saves. We bear his name. We are Christians. Amen. And so he says there that um, they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. The fish will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In other words, refuse. In other words, it's a picture of hell and it's not a, a, a temporary thing. And there will be ongoing weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so today is the day. If you've not received the Lord, if you're on one side of the fence and you have rejected Christ and you're going, Oh, I love you, God, but I'm really not following you. And all the, all the kinds of things it is today that God is calling to your heart to lose your life and actually find it. Turn from sin and turn towards God, the savior. Believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And in being the son of God, he died to pay for your sins on the cross thoroughly, absolutely, completely. And it is a gift of God. Can't earn it. You receive it by faith. And he also rose again from the grave to give you eternal life. He died and rose again that you might die and live again. Today's the day. Jesus says in John 6 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's the will of the father, that anyone who looks upon the son, another idiom for who believes upon Jesus, another way of saying that shall I will, I'm not holding back. It's a guarantee. Amen. Amen. Shall have eternal life. And shall be raised up in the last day. He's got your now and forever. And everything worked out. He's got you in his hands. Jesus says, Jesus saves us from hell. So give up everything and let him possess you. Now, the last three parables were most likely given to disciples when they were alone with Jesus. We know this because you start reading verse 51. What do you find out? Have you understood all these things? Is he speaking to the masses? No, he's speaking to his disciples. And then they said to him, yes. Have you understood all these things, church? Yes, of course. No, 
And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Here, Jesus is asking if they understood everything. They said, yes. And I have to believe, uh, you know, that they're just saying they understood generally what he was talking about. He who has received will be given more and God will, he will fill out their knowledge on this stuff. I think there's more conversations that obviously that Matthew didn't record. He's giving us the, the highlights there. So Jesus, Jesus here then says, you understand this. And then he likens them to, to scribes, which were the lawyers of the day. And lawyers weren't simply litigators. They were, they were students of, of the law of, of the things of God. They were also uh, learners and they were, you know, well, they were teachers. That's what they were. They not only under, they not only understood it, but they taught it to the people as I just so eloquently explained. <laughs> so Jesus says, Hey man, you're a scribe. You guys are scribes. You're like scribes, like just like scribes to Israel. You are scribes of the kingdom. You're scribes of the kingdom. You are the teachers of the kingdom disciples. 12, not all of us right now, I'm just sticking in modern context. You guys are the ones. And he, and he goes, you guys are like the master of a house. What was the master of a house supposed to do? They're in charge of all the goods that are inside the house to make sure everybody lives who owns is in the house, right? Hey, does everybody have food? What do they need? Anybody sick? Anybody need help understanding? And then they dish out of those treasures, new and old to meet the needs of people so they can grow and live and thrive. Amen. So that's what he's saying to them. You are the spiritual teachers of the kingdom. And so you are to, you're responsible as I've given you these teachings about the kingdom to teach the people about the kingdom. Old truth and the truth that was based upon the old truth, old and new, the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God, Genesis to revelation. Amen. You're responsible to manage and distribute the treasure to the people of God. Now they were to be teaching foundational truths as well as the truths that sprang from those truths. We've got a couple more minutes. Just listen up. Hold with me. Hebrews five gives us insight into their responsibility. And he, and it's kind of sad because whoever is the writer of Hebrews is actually correcting the people he's writing to. And in that we find an understanding of what they're, they're just supposed to be understanding here. Hold on a second here. Hebrews uh, 5, 11 through 14 says about this. We have much to say about Melchizedek, about the Jesus being a picture of all the, some pretty cool stuff. Some pretty cool stuff. He says about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Okay. He says for, for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again, the basic principles of the Oracle of God, the old truths, the fundamental truths. You need someone to teach you the foundational things. That was part of what Jesus was saying. Listen, you've got to teach people the foundational stuff, the old truths. You need to teach them the foundational principles. That's part of it. And he's saying to the people in this correction, you need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. And that's what a, generally an immature, unbelief, uh, new believer is, is someone who's unskilled in, in the word of righteousness. In other words, they don't understand the basic principles and they don't understand beyond the basic principles, how to apply that in their life. And what the word of God does as you move on in your walk with the Lord is it helps you discern good and evil. And it gives you discernment about the kingdom and about the kingdom, the outer kingdom and the inner kingdom, all these types of things, how to live righteously, how to follow the Lord and be under his rule and to mimic him and to live him as he's in you. And so he's saying, you need milk guys. You should be at this place. I want to explain these heavy things to you. I want you to be in calculus, but you've got to go back to adding and subtraction. Right? If I did that right. And just to give you insight about what he's talking about, what's the milk? What's the fundamental things? He explains it. Move to chapter six, flip over there. Well, I didn't have your Bibles there, did you? It's all right. I didn't really tell you to move there. Instructor fault. Chapter six of Hebrews verses one through three. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. That's what the first things were. The milk is the elementary doctrines of Christ. And the writer here kind of gives you an idea of what those are. Not laying again, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands or, or baptism, right? And the, and the laying on of hands in the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now are all those things awesome? And do you hear them preach here often? Amen. What am I doing? <coughs> Teaching the fundamental things about the faith, because in a group like this, we're all at different places. And so there's low hanging fruit for all of us and reminders of things. But then there's things that are like, I don't understand this. Partly that's because I don't do a good, good job explaining. But sometimes it's because God has, he's, he's got, he's giving things to some people who've been walking with him for a little bit further. Amen. And so there's a place in the body of Christ. There's a place, there's a responsibility of the teachers there to explain these things. Why? So that everybody could go, oh, look at the teacher. No, so they would be blessed and they would grow. So they could have a mega ministry and have an airplane and all this stuff. No. So the people would be blessed. So that you would walk in maturity with Christ. And in that, as you grow, you begin to discern good and evil. And you begin to find out who you are in the Lord and what he's given you in your giftings and how to give yourself away for the mutual benefit of those around you. Amen. That's what mature people do. They think of others. And so the disciples were then charged now that they've been responsible with learning of what they had been taught. That's what they were supposed to do. So they were to get out there and not only give away the milk, but also the meat products. You just spoken of the significance of Melchizedek. Melchizedek and as, as a symbol of Christ and so forth. And I wish he had been gone on and explained that because that's just awesome stuff. And we long for that as we grow, because you can't come to the end of your, our understanding of God. I hope you know that if you have, you're in a bad place. Cause he's infinite. 
Have you ever read a parable and just started, you saw, you understood on the surface value and you're like, oh, that's so cool. Then you come back to it and you see more depth and more significance. And then you look and how it's attached to all these scriptures and these spiritual truths. And then you start to get lost. And then you're, you're, you start to recalibrate your, your thinking. And then you go and you read it again sometime and it starts to expand and expand and expand because you're growing spiritually. This is a, this is a living, the living word of God in the hearts of living people. And you grow as you feast upon it in the spirit of God teaches you. He is our teacher. Amen. So today, you know, like in our church, we have the elders of the church, gifted teachers within the body and and gifted teachers within the body, Um, men and women who are called to this as well, to study, to understand, to teach the entire counsel of the word of God to the family of God that we might all grow in milk and meat. And I love John Calvin's statement there that Jesus is the milk and Jesus is the meat. He's both. People go, ah, meat. Because of that verse in Hebrews five, it's like, you know, I'm just a meat. I'm just eating the meat, you know, the keto diet or whatever it is. You know, it's like Jesus is all of it. Let him bless you where you're at. And don't be thinking you have to be somewhere where you're not. There is a time where we got to grow. We've got to be willing to come to the table. Amen. And I see that growth within the church. So God desires that you would grow in him. And he's put gifted people around you to help you. And by the way, you have things that he has put in you to help shape and help others. And and, and by the way, it's not going to be perfect. And this is why it's always fun to open up the discussions about what does this parable mean? Because people have all kinds of thoughts about what things mean. And sometimes they're really weird. And we need to say that's weird. No, like that's not what that means. I love you. But because you know what happens in the study, just real quickly, someone says, oh, this means this and this. And everybody's kind of discernment's going off like that's kind of strange. And then everybody just kind of trying to be nice to them. Goes, oh, well, they just let it go. And then people start walking away with thinking that's what it means. It's like, we got to just go, oh, no, that's, that's not what it means. You know, if we got to work on how to say that. But because truth is important. It's really important. It's more important than me. It's more important than you because it represents who he is. And we need to communicate that in love. I know I'm going off on things. In closing, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished all these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. So he's back there in his hometown. (sighs) Please help me with his hometown, everybody. Thank you. Jesus of Nazareth. I knew that. And they're going, where did this man get his wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is this not, isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are, don't we know all these people? And the sisters, aren't they all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Again, the people saw, but they could not see. They heard, but they could not hear. Our hearts had become dull. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town. And in his own household, the very people that should see the work of God did not. And this just sums up the whole thing of what he just talked about. 
very few got it. So what kept the, and he says there, and he did in, in verse 58, he, and he did not do and sorry. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What keeps God from working mightily in Jesus's hometown? Their organizational skills. What was it? Unbelief. What keeps God from working mightily in this church? What does unbelief look like? What we just saw, what we just read about heart condition, all these types of things. Not recognizing the value of the kingdom, not treasuring the Lord. What's going to keep the Lord working from your life in your life? Unbelief. But I believe now oh, belief in the way he's talking about it. And here's the wonderful thing. I love that prayer of that guy somewhere in the Bible. Lord help my unbelief. Anybody else? <coughs> Jesus is like only believe. He's like, I don't got that. I don't help. Help my unbelief. I recognize I don't have that. God desires you to ask them that and he'll will answer. Amen. He'll grow you. Don't try to put on fig leaves and be someone you're not. Just go to the Lord and say, this is where I'm at. Help. Help. You know, may the Lord rekindle our first love and keep our affections and devotions for him burning here and in our own lives. Amen. May God just give us not a manufactured joy and a zeal, but a real joy and a zeal. There's joy and the zeal of his spirit. Amen. Let's enjoy him together. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your kindness towards us. As John already prayed. Thank you that we have salvation. Thank you that you're not an ogre Lord. You're kind and gentle and you've drawn us to you. And your will is that we would grow in you in like a father over a house, Lord, we would just enjoy all the provision you've given us. And it's immense. Help us to love like you've loved Lord more and more. Thank you for the work you've already done. And we pray that in this place, you would do mighty works, not for the sake of our name, but for the sake of your mighty name, that they might know that you are the son of God. Be glorified father in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.